Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of The Remnant, um, which is brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media, which you can find at thedispatch.com, where you can sign up for um, all of our wares. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Mrs. Fields Cookies. More about that in a little bit. Uh, who doesn't like cookies? Um, so you probably know if you looked in your feed um, that this is a, a sort of a different kind of episode. Uh, I ha- I'm actually in what I would at, would have once called behind enemy lines, uh, but no more. Uh, at Reason Magazine, I'm in their studio. Um, it's amazing. It's like... Uh, a bar mitzvah at Caligula's Palace out in the editorial suite. Um, and uh, I'm interviewing Nick Gillespie. Who, what is your title now? I am editor-at-large. Uh-huh. I used to be an editor-at-large. Yeah, now it's, it's a good place to be. Yeah, it's it's you have all the freedom to kibitz and complain and point out better things, but no responsibility to see anything actually carried out. Uh, that is pretty accurate. We used to talk about it in terms of, you know, th- there are staff that load diapers and staff that change diapers. Uh-huh. An editor-at-large is loading diapers. Yeah, that's I like yeah. it. Um, so, uh, uh, and we're going to sort of pick up where we left off. Maybe not exactly where we left yeah. off because we were talking. What were we talking about? Um, uh, I think we had straight into conversations about Star Wars. And the Mandalorian yeah, and all of that yeah. kind of stuff. That's right. Um, are you still keep up on sci-fi? Uh, somewhat. I've become uh, – I really dislike – I've always disliked Star Trek other than uh-huh. the original series. And I'm a big – I'm not a Star Trek fan. I'm a William Shatner fan. Uh-huh. So I so there is TJ, someone who comes see, out that way. That's interesting. I see T.J. Hooker as like everything is moving up to and away from T.J. Hooker. Uh-huh. Um, Does that include the Gremlin episode of, yeah. of oh, yeah. Twilight Zone? And, and the Esperanto movie he, t- he oh, yeah, recorded yeah, yeah. in the mid-60s. What about the spoken word uh, uh, rendition of Rocket Man? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'll tell you this. That is great. And I remember seeing that live with my brother. This would have been Seriously? in the late 70s. It was on a... a a syndicated science fiction awards program and it was just called like ladies and gentlemen the science fiction awards program really hosted by bill shatner and bernie toppin comes out the, uh-huh. the lyricist of rocket man and says like you know when elton john and i did the rocket man it was a big hit with the kids here is william shatner <laughs> doing his dramatic <laughs> reading of it and uh, i'm sorry can i curse on your podcast I'll i'd rather I'll, you I'll, didn't I'll, I'll uh, uh but we can try and beep it out no, so but, that's right. um it's uh and then shatner did this and my brother who's a huge science fiction guy he's a few years older than me we looked at that and we we're like did we just see that yeah, yeah, and yeah. then there was another kid in our neighborhood who was into science fiction and the next day at the bus stop or whatever we were like you know like did we imagine that and yeah. then it was gone because this was the 70s so there was no on-demand culture there was no reruns yeah. there was no vcrs yet and um, I used that thing when when Napster came out as a file, unauthorized file sharing uh-huh. service in the late '90s. The first thing I did, I was like, I wonder if they have Rocket Man by William Shatner. And like within a day of Napster starting, there were like five versions. Like, <laughs> That's this awesome! This is great. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. freedom. And when YouTube started, I did the same thing, and yeah. they actually had the footage. And I sent it around to my friend and my brother, and I was like. You know, we didn't dream it. Yeah. But. So it's funny you mentioned this because I have a very similar experience with something somewhat related. Um, I was in – I was out of high school. I was backpacking with a buddy of mine and in Europe. And we were at a hotel and uh, and there's this video that comes on the TV that was a claymation video of Star Trek. 
And mm. the song, it's called Star Trekkin'. Star okay. Trekkin' Across the Universe. Yeah. Allegedly by a band called The Firm, but I don't think it's the same firm. The, okay, so yeah. it's not Jimmy Page or I, Paul I, Rod. Yeah, I got to go check because yeah. it, it's like every – and like for years, wow. if we hadn't both seen it, yeah. um, we would have just assumed it was an hallucination. <laughs> and um, But you could, I believe you could – we'll put it in the show notes because it's got to be on YouTube. Yeah, no, uh, this is another more recent one of those. I uh, remembered I, I went to grad school from 1988 to 1990 at Temple University in Philadelphia, and I was watching with a friend of mine – a Arnold Schwarzenegger Christmas special that had uh, Randy Travis, Danny DeVito, because it came out when Twins was coming out. So it was Danny DeVito, Randy Travis, Barbara Mandrell, Mike Tyson, uh-huh. and a bunch of Special Olympic athletes yeah. because he was married to uh, uh, Maria Shriver, whose mother started the uh, Special Olympics. And it is like everything you can imagine. It's better than the Star Wars Christmas special. Yeah, which is which, special. Which is pretty fantastic. Yeah. Right? When B. Arthur is singing... Songs after the Star Wars cantina closes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I remember explaining that to a couple of people, and they were like, you're making that up. Like where Arnold is working out with special Olympic athletes who are making fun of him. Uh-huh. Uh, where Mike Tyson is like, you know, <laughs> shadow boxing with Barbara Mandrell or something. And everybody was like, you're making that up. And it was the hardest freaking thing to find online because Schwarzenegger, who has immense power, scrubbed it from everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's out there. Look for it. It's okay, so yeah. uh, just because you reminded me of something that – I may have imagined. Um, but there was a commercial in the 80s for the Bronx Zoo where the voiceover is something along the lines. You see you see like a, a gorilla or an orangutan in a field, and the voiceover is, they left me alone, and he walks closer to the camera. I've had to make my way here not knowing whatever, and walks closer to the camera. Someday they'll come back for me, and he looks skyward as if looking for a rocket, and then just closes the Bronx Zoo. Wow. And, I, and it was so trippy, and yeah. I've looked on YouTube a million times for this thing. That sounds great. Because my imagination may have gotten the... Yeah. It's been so long, I might have been high. Who knows, you know? Yeah. So, um, now, but, you uh, might have been high. Were you... You don't smoke pot anymore, do you? No, do you? no. Do you, no. Would, you, would you admit it if you did? Um, I'd be reluctant to, but I, 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 I was never a good... Um, give me one. This is... I paid for this microphone, Mr. Bree. Yeah, that was <laughs> but yeah. uh, um, I, weed was never really my yeah. thing. Um, and because uh, there are people who get really social with weed, mm-hmm. I get really introspective. Yeah. And um, so you may have dreamed it. It's possible. Not, yeah, it's possible. I dream some weird stuff. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we, wow. okay, we yeah, should you, get back to yes. like, some some substance here. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, tell me about well, just just you asked me all these questions earlier about you know mm-hmm. the state of conservatism and in the era of Donald Trump in the era of Donald Trump and it reminded me I didn't say this on our thing but a, a radio show host once asked me back when right wing radio hosts would still have me on would William F Buckley recognize today's Republican Party and um, I said well you know. Charlton Heston recognized the Statue of Liberty at the end of Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Recognition is not a really high bar. Um, well, can I? I, I don't um, mean to turn that away, but uh-huh. um, what would Buckley think? Because my understanding, when you guys had your 50th anniversary party in mm-hmm. D.C., which I – and this was a, a moment of uh, understanding for me of where libertarians fit in the modern right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason table was – Way, way, way in the back and like 10 rows earlier, closer to the stage was the log cabin Republicans. Is that right? Like, holy cow, we're 
way in the hinterlands compared to the gays. Yeah. Like, we really are on the outs. Um, but my understanding was At least that they were Republicans. Buckley, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. um, but that, uh, and they believe in marriage, I yeah. guess, right? Um, but, um, you know, that Buckley was kind of disappointed in the way National Review and the conservative movement had faded. And, like, at that dinner, it was odd, Stan Evans, Stan, uh-huh. M. Stanton Evans, was the co-host, and it was one of Buckley's last public appearances, and they were really sour. And it was odd because George W. Bush had just won re-election. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a magazine that more than any, you know, it's it's amazing how National Review went from zero readers in 1955 mm-hmm. to electing Ronald Reagan, reconfiguring the American political landscape, and we had just locked into it. I think David Brooks at the time was claiming was a permanent governing majority for Republicans. Yeah, that worked out. Yeah, but, and, you know, I mean, was Buckley disenchanted with the way National Review and the conservative movement had had been You know, I I honestly don't know. I knew Bill pretty well, um, not as well as some other people at NR, certainly not like Rick Brookreiser, who knew him for a quarter century. But um, Bill did have a melancholy side to him and a dyspeptic side to him. And um, I, you know, this is the what would Bill Buckley do right. conversation is a common one on the right. Uh, there are a lot of people who think he would be all in for Trump. I think that's ludicrous. Yeah, that seems totally right. Yeah. I think at the very minimum, he would make a sort of a binary choice kind mm-hmm. of argument and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, Bill Buckley belie- really believed in good manners. Even when mm-hmm. he was saying things that yeah. were offensive to people, yeah, yeah. he believed in, in, being, in doing it in a well-mannered way. And mm-hmm. so... Trump's style alone would probably have really bothered him. And, and you know, Buckley made his career criticizing Republican politicians right. from, you know, I, certainly Eisenhower. But, you know, his relationship yeah. with Nixon was frosty. Yeah, and, as and a matter, if I'm remembering correctly, National Review didn't endorse Richard Nixon for president in 1960. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and so uh, my guess is he would have had a sort of a a, a nuanced and Buckley-esque position on a lot of these things right. um, and he didn't like yahooism very much so so but i don't know yeah. i mean he he um you know by the end he was very ill from the emphysema and right. all that kind of stuff so I, I i i'm not sure i would extrapolate from one evening right. i mean one of the one of his bizarre gifts was to write brutally honest obituaries yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. and you know it takes a certain personality type to be yeah, willing no, to, I remember, to be able to do that uh, there's still a lot of libertarian feathers ruffled uh, when Murray Rothbard died and I'm not particularly a fan of Murray Rothbard yeah. he wrote a obituary uh, where he said something like I uh you know, send my regrets to his immediate family, but not the movement he inspired. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was very nasty. Yeah, no, he, uh, he, yeah, he did yeah. some of that stuff. Um... At the same time, I was going to say, um, you know, and this is, um, you know, it's odd to pull Buckley because he was such a um, effective and fierce polemicist. Also, we could use more people like him. One of the things that is amazing about Firing Line, as well as many yeah. other appearances he made where he would talk to people that he disagreed with completely or almost completely or would arrange a, a, an array of voices. Yeah, Noam Chomsky, yeah. you know, yeah. all those guys, yeah. Yeah, no, and I'm, one of my favorite episodes of Firing Line, it's um, 
It is uh, Ed Sanders of the Fugs, Jack Kerouac, and an academic I can't remember. And it's like about the hippies or yeah, something. Yeah. And it's just it's like amazing. Yeah. You know? Although Kerouac you know, was a National Review subscriber, I, I know, and he gave his last major interview to National Review yeah. before he died. And I, I mean, he was. Let me put it this way: he didn't represent conservative values very well. He was drunk off his ass and was speaking in you know his Quebecois French yeah. uh, for well, a good part of the evening. But yeah, we, yeah. we have our own levels of diversity. So yeah, uh, so. Uh, Enough about you know my yes. shambolic side. All right. Explain to me the state of the libertarian. Is it a movement? Is it a community? Yeah. Is well, it, yeah. so I'll tell you. You know, one of the things there's no question that conservatives be, uh, and Republicans, because Trump is a Republican, obviously not a conservative, but he is carrying that mantle. There's a lot of fighting over Trump. Is he does he represent us? Is he not? You know, there's a lot of fractures mm-hmm. going on. I would say within the libertarian movement. Um, there, it's um, interesting, like small L libertarians, some are very pro-Trump mm-hmm. uh, because they think he is burning everything down. And right. that, you know, green shoots, you know, it's that I, I suspect uh, I wasn't around at the time. But when Planet of the Apes came out, there were probably some libertarians who were like, oh, that's good that they blew up the earth because whatever comes next will be better. You know, this uh-huh. is amenitizing the eschaton or yeah, something. Yeah. Um, there are libertarians who are like, we can work with him, or not work with him, but work with the world he's creating. Uh, and then there are people who are so anti, like so never Trump, mm-hmm. that they can't talk about, you know, a good piece of fish that they have without talking about how much better it would have been if Donald Trump had right. never been elected. Yeah. Uh, and who are actively, I think, working for a Democrat to win because that is the alternative to Donald Trump and that is preferable to another four years of Donald Trump. Um, I find myself um, increasingly, well, there are two things. One, in terms of politics, somebody like Donald Trump is a really brutal clarifying agent. He's Mm -hmm. he's an emetic. I mean, he's like syrup of Ipecac or a diuretic in American politics. A while ago, I likened him to the uh, the main character in Eugene O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. It's a character <laughs> named Hickey, a traveling salesman who comes around once or twice a year to this bar in the in the Lower East Side of New York. And there's a bunch of barflies who are all lying to themselves about their grand plans. And he will come through and systematically make them admit they are never going to leave this bar and they're never going to get their <laughs> or anything. And in the, the context of the play, spoiler alert, at the very end after he does this in, in really great, you know, nasty form, he reveals that he has killed his wife and he's marched off by the police and he's an insane man. <laughs> I think Donald Trump is Hickey from the Ice Band Cometh. And that's not a bad thing. Like anything he does, he's he's a horrible human being, but he could have a very good effect on American politics. In terms Sorry, of, so play that out for me. So he's forcing people to own their positions about stuff. Because uh-huh. like so, uh, for instance, for libertarians, he is kind of forcing us to really own, like, do we believe in absolute free trade or not? Um, Do we believe in um, getting out of foreign countries and Mm -hmm. things like that? He's forcing people to say, like, you know, when he his deep state critique is something that libertarians and certain elements on the left have been saying for years. And certain elements on the right, too. The Department of Justice, you know, these are unbelievably corrupt organizations, et cetera. Like, he's he's making a lot of people own things. One of the great moments in a recent Democratic debate, Democratic candidate debate, was somebody said, like, well, you know, what are you against Donald Trump's tariffs? And, like, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and all these people had to be like, no, I hate Donald Trump, but I would never get rid of I, You know, the difference between me and Donald Trump is I will never end tariffs against China because I believe in protectionism, mm-hmm. you know, full stop. Trump is at least claiming 
including when he accomplishes whatever goal he set, he'll, you know, he, he's a free trade guy, uh-huh. you know, if if the other people are playing fair. I think, um, you know, I think in that sense, Trump, uh, you know, it, it, again, I, I don't support him. I don't see him as the end of the world. He's not the fifth horseman of the apocalypse yeah. or anything. But he is making us take account of what we really believe. Um, a lot of libertarians say, you know, uh, they're happy for him to be impeached and we should impeach more presidents. I, I find that like a fatuous statement, to mm-hmm. be quite honest. I argue with my colleagues a lot about it. And, um, you know, I think he but he's also making me say like, well, you know, like I don't think he should be impeached. I, I don't think he should be removed for, from office for what he's been accused of so far. Mm-hmm. But it's also like, well, maybe government isn't something that is always terrible. Like there are better and worse versions of government. I think he's forcing an accounting on the libertarian side that can be very helpful to the intellectual dimensions of libertarianism. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, I'm still not sure I see it because like one of the grave concerns I have is – you know, there's – what's his name? Um, Cal – Cranston, the California senator from Alan Wall- Cranston, yeah, remember the old guy? It looked yeah. like a death's head. Yeah, there's a great uh, sort of um, Skeletor with emphysema kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, totally, so he totally, yeah. uh, he um, had this great line during I think Watergate hearings. I quote it every couple of years, um, where he says, "You know, my friends on the right always said we should be worried about this presidential abuse of power yeah. and stuff, and I never listened to them. But maybe they were right that it's yeah. bad." Blah 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 yeah. blah. Um, the the next if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie right. Sanders, are, they are not going to um, return us to regular order. Absolutely they are going not. to yeah. pocket yeah. all of these deviations from the norm and say, well, they got to use them, so we right. get to use them, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, that's part of what Trump is saying, you know, that uh, you know Obama did this and that, et cetera. And, uh, you know, and uh, let me put it this way. Part of – I um, – I interviewed Judge Napolitano, uh-huh. know, who's the last liberta- like hardcore libertarian at Fox News. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, every president is worse than the previous one because they get all of the power that their colleagues in Congress granted them, plus whatever new ones they get granted. And, um, you know, so Trump is the worst president by, de- you know, by Napolitano's definition, and he's a mass power. I don't think it's critical yet in the sense that every time he's been told to stop, Mm-hmm. You know, he hasn't pulled an Andrew Jackson yet. True. Um, and that because he doesn't important. know what he's doing, which is maybe, a, maybe yeah. not. But I mean, I, I believe in institutions. Um, and I also I, I guess where I was going with this, though, is that um, Trump is forcing um, I think he forces people to kind of sit, go all the way through, like when you agree with him on mm-hmm. something. Like, you really have to think through, like, why do I agree with this? And is, and can I separate it from this kind of loathsome character? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so. And he, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, right. but what are podcasts for if not yeah. to ramble? Yeah. Um, you know, he has done stuff from a libertarian perspective, which is quite good. Uh, you know, things like criminal justice sure. reform. He, in 2016, against Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton was not going to, said she would not sign legislation that would make marijuana legal or decriminalize. Trump said, you know, what? if Congress wants to return that to the states, he doesn't, you know, he was fine with that. It's yeah. like, in many ways, he's advanced certain things. The tax bill that he put forward, it's terrible in the context of he's still spending more money than we're bringing in. 
But he actually did a bunch of things that make absolute sense, like changing the way that uh, taxes collected on a worldwide basis for Americans, uh, changing certain depreciation schedules, um, getting rid of the state and local tax deduction. Good for him. I, yep. I Unfortunately, I moved from a relatively low tax place to New York City, so yeah. I'm, I'm still paying for that. But, you know, these are things that are not such, you know, they're not terrible. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I agree with that. There's yeah. a lot of that stuff I support. Um I, I always bristle a little bit, and this is a point that I made before mm-hmm. Trump was president, where we – anything good that happens on the president's watch, he gets the credit for right, it, right? Sure. And this is really Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell saying, here's yeah. a fait accompli, sign it. And he said, okay, because he didn't yeah, care. Yeah, but I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, we, Paul Ryan is, by the way, uh, one of the, the biggest disappointments in, in American political history, I think. But uh, I, you know what? I don't want to get dragged down uh-huh. that Yeah, I don't, don't want to go down that so, alley either. Uh, Because it doesn't matter anymore. But having said that, yeah, like Trump, you know, Trump should get credit for the things that presidents get credit for. Then they almost never deserve them. I guess this goes to my longer uh, answer to the question about what's up with libertarian stuff today or what am I thinking? One of the things uh, I I believe in institutions, I believe in structures, I believe in, you know, having uh, showing your math, you Mm -hmm. know, in everything you do. And one of the reasons Virginia Postrel, who's I know you're friendly with Mm -hmm. her. She ran some of your stuff in Reason way back in the day. She's the one who hired me. One of the ways she taught journalism, and I think this is very much what Reason aspires to do, is like when you make an argument, you give all of your, you know, your sources, your your thinking, like you make it all plain so people can say, okay, that makes sense. Or like here, you made a mistake here. And, you know, um, I believe in structures. I believe in process. I believe in all of that kind of stuff because I think that's what liberalism, you know, classical liberalism is all about really is kind of um, rationalizing a lot of processes so that people can't just get away with whim and claim that it's Mm -hmm. divine law or anything like that. Having said that, I think that government ultimately, it's about pre-political feelings and that we get the government that we deserve. Mm -hmm. And Americans have wanted I love a it government. You, you know, that's, yeah. that's Joseph de Maestro who first said yeah, that. Yeah, I know, which yeah, is so, sad. Believe me. So I, libertarians I, for I, counter-enlightenment yeah, reactionaries. No, who, yeah, who is, <laughs> he's, he's the bottom of the bay. I mean, we've argued about this. He's the guy that when Hayek said, I am not a conservative, he was pointing directly yeah, at Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but, you know, we do live in a representative government, and we, we have for a long time, and it's only getting worse, we've said we want a government that you know, spends much, much more than it ever takes in uh, we, all sorts of things. And I see libertarian at this point. And when I say libertarian, like I don't say I am a libertarian. I say I have libertarian uh, sentiments or tendencies. I tend to think of it as an adjective and as a direction that we move towards. It's a default setting that always gives the individual more freedom and more choice in whatever we're talking about. It can be overridden mm-hmm. in, in particular cases. Um, but it is a pre-political and certainly a pre-partisan mm-hmm. sensibility. That is, like, do you want to live in a world that is less controlled and less centralized or or more kind of chaotic or anarchic and decentralized? I'm not an anarchist. I believe in government. I believe it just should be a lot smaller and it should be rule-bound. Um, but uh, that's what I think Trump is also helping to kind of clarify because, you know, people who get bent out of shape over Trump and who are apoplectic about him, it seems odd to me, you know, because they were this way about Obama and they were this way about Bush. Like, why is Trump special? 
he is in, he is his own uniquely horrible president, mm-hmm. but I don't know that he's a qualitatively different monster than Obama or Bush. Okay. I one of the advantages and disadvantages of being a libertarianism being a libertarian is that you're on such a far shore that yeah, the, oh, the yeah, gradations right. of the we landscape are out there past Pluto. Yeah. Right. So the gradations of landscape don't seem all that dramatic to you yeah. from such a distance, but right. um, from up close, I think there there's some remarkable differences. And, and look, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that Obama but, did that drove me crazy. But, yeah, but and, and remember, like we, you know, we both, I'm sure, personally, and if not us personally, like are are the 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 posses that we rolled with mm-hmm. or whatever. We're talking about Obama as history's greatest monster. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, that yeah. he contravened yeah. all of the norms and he, yeah. he used all. You know, he just broke the law when it when he couldn't finesse it. And people were saying that about Bush Hitler back in the yeah, day yeah, and all yeah. of that. And there's some truth to it all. But it's like, I guess for me, the way that we get back to uh, a place where politics and government is in its right size in the whole of human life mm-hmm. um, is like we need to have a libertarian consciousness raising, which happens way before you decide what party you're voting for or anything like that. And it really is about saying, you know what, I believe that individuals all have a certain amount of dignity and and a certain amount of right to live their lives the way Uh they want to. And then a lot of other things have to proceed from that. Yeah. No, look, that's that's all fine. I just think when you take that sentiment, which I've moved, I've become more and more a fan of Light's moral foundation stuff. and I've changed my view about intellectual history in a lot of ways. But... um, when you actually get to the punditry part of that, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of wish casting in what you're doing. But, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but so since we're talking about partisanship right. and libertarians, um, um, can you give listeners a short pricey on the relationship between Reason Magazine and the Libertarian Party? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, so the uh, Reason Magazine was founded in 1968 um, by a guy who was a uh, Ayn Rand fan. He was an objectivist. That's why the magazine is called Reason. Mm-hmm. Rand thought reason is the thing that made humans humans. You're not a Randian. I am not. No. And uh, by the time, uh, no. And uh, Virginia certainly wasn't. The first few editors of Reason were kind of objectivists. And, and even Lanny Friedlander, the guy who founded it, was not a Randian. Mm-hmm. He was interested in objectivism, whatever. Uh, but in any case, so Reason was founded in 1968 as a magazine of ideas, and it was modeled uh, in, in its early kind of uh, statements about what it was trying to do. It talked about trying to be like National Review mm-hmm. for Libertarians or the Nation or whatever. Um, the Libertarian Party was founded in 1971, and it's a political party. We don't have any official connection with them. Mm-hmm. Personally, uh, you know, and we're run by a nonprofit, so we can't specifically endorse sure. candidates or particular ballot initiatives, et cetera. There are many ways that you obviously can show support or, you know, common sensibilities with and all of that. So I we take a special interest in the Libertarian Party, sure. but we are not of it. Of my colleagues, and I've been at Reason now like 26 years, I think, so it's a long freaking time. Um, I don't even know if any of them are members of the LP. Uh I probably registered as a libertarian sometime in the 80s when I first was able to vote, but I'm not a member now. Uh Um, And so 
I voted I, for Andre Maru in 1992. Yeah, no, was, uh, he once took me to dinner. So there you, uh, go. you know, he would have gotten my vote, but it, this uh-huh. was long after his politics had ended. And I was, I was bullish. Uh, I don't know if this gets to topic that you're interested in talking about on the Johnson Weld campaign. I was uh-huh. bullish. I ultimately they did not perform as strongly as I would have liked, um, but. You know, the, I thought they were, you know, they kind of showed an alternative that was certainly not Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. not Donald Trump. And, um, you know, I kind of like that. The Libertarian Party now is going through a weird moment where a lot of people think that Johnson and Weld, who tripled the number of votes that was ever gotten, they, you know, they got like 3.3 percent of the general general uh-huh. vote and all that, that it was the biggest disaster ever in party history. Uh, because as somebody whose podcast is named The Remnant, uh-huh. you, you can appreciate people who the one thing that they hate more than being completely ignored is actually having any measure of success. Yeah, yeah. You Relevance know, yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, they are the Libertarian Party now is going through a thing where they almost certainly will end up uh, nominating somebody who is a total purist. Uh-huh. And they will go back down, I would tend to believe to getting 500,000 votes yeah. in the next election where they should actually be onward and upward. Again, I don't really care about politics. I care about um, the kind of sensibilities that end up informing politics as well as things like um, you know uh, religion or social experiments and, and uh-huh. literature and things like that. So I'm not too bent out of shape over that. Is your sense that, though, that it always seemed to me that one of the things you judge political movements okay. right? once actually engaged in politics yeah, yeah. right right um isn't so much what they say but what they prioritize right mm-hmm. you know like yeah. and it seemed to me that certainly in the 90s and into the 2000s the libertarian party may have been for the privatization of lighthouses and right, electric yeah. utilities but Finally. they were but they were really about legalizing weed yeah and uh, or drugs yeah probably yeah. i mean i think that was a big uh, issue and it's you know it it's um, fascinating to me because I say this as somebody who um, I no longer drink, I don't smoke weed, I take a lot of psychedelics, uh, uh-huh. and I, so I still use drugs, and I also use a lot of legal drugs that when I, when I need to and things like that. Um, it's always been interesting to me that uh, libertarians, you know, they talk a lot about guns and drugs, and yeah. like those two things, <laughs> you know, like you don't necessarily want to be doing those two things at the same time, but, right? Um, and those priorities probably have hurt the movement, uh, both as a political party and as a kind of social movement, uh, because it turns out that with drugs, the people who are into drug legalization, and I think the I think the war on drugs is one of the uh, most purely evil things that the uh, that America has has done. You know, it's mm-hmm. up there with Indian genocide and and slavery, uh, and certain types of anti-immigrant policies that came on board. You know, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, but the way that we tended to talk about it was probably drove more people away. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that relatively few people care about the drug issue per se. The people who do are really intense. Right. So it's you know. Um, that's a uh, it's it's an interesting question for me because it's we also now live in an age though and this is something that I was thinking about with the last Democratic debate none of the none of the people on stage were remotely libertarian but they all agreed with a bunch of stuff 
that was very libertarian. And, and among that was uh, things like criminal justice reform, uh, drug legalization. Everybody believes in marijuana legalization. And that's either from a moral, what might be called a moral perspective, saying that, you know, I have a right to grow my own body, or from a pragmatic thing, which is just that the cost-benefit analysis of prohibiting pot, um, it's, it's a bad investment that mm -hmm. we should be making. There are better ways to go about doing stuff. And we're, you know, we're in, in many profound ways, we're in a libertarian world, but we'll, it will never be acknowledged as such. And I can live with that. I can live with a world where people aren't going to jail or, um, you know, getting in trouble for using an intoxicant that one day was legal and the next day is not. Like ecstasy, MDMA, you know, was legal up until a certain point, like in 85, 86, then it wasn't. You know, I'm glad that we're moving towards legalizing more things. I'm glad that more people can legally get married and hence legally get divorced. Um, you know, I, you know, people are more chill about all sorts of things. I think people are more comfortable with different types of businesses, mm -hmm. um, you know, and different types of um, living conditions and all of that. So, you know, that's all good. And weirdly, like the Democrats who want to destroy the last vestiges of capitalism, which is a really, really big problem are also pretty libertarian on a lot of issues, as is Donald Trump. Yeah, so um, I don't want to get into the drug war stuff just because yeah. yeah, yeah. I've been around that horn a million times. Um, um, but this does – the stuff I'm sort of – you know, as a backstory, um, yeah. uh, early on in my tenure at National Review Online, I got into a lot of fights with libertarians. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem was I – was particularly hated by a group of libertarians who were of the Lou Rockwell bent. Okay. Right? And I've always found, you know, the... And not everybody who wrote for them was a bad guy. Right, there, right. there are some serious people who wrote there and all the rest and all that kind of stuff. For listeners who don't know, LouRockwell.com was a big deal on the early internet. And it was a libertarian thing, very von Miesian, yeah. based out of the University of Alabama uh, or, near, no, or no, the periphery Auburn. of it. Uh, Auburn. They, they live in Auburn. Uh -huh. um, they are not affiliated with Auburn University, but that's where the Mises Institute is, uh -huh. which has taken on the name um, of Ludwig von Mises, who, in, in a shocking bit of irony, I mean, because... Uh, the Lou Rockwell crowd and the Mises Institute mostly is very interested in kind of localism. They have a lot of sympathy for the Confederacy right. and like old times. And their names, I mean, you know, the Mises Institute, Ludwig von Mises is the kind of archetypal um, wandering Jew cosmopolitan right. who loved the city. And here these guys are talking about autarky in Auburn, Alabama, of all places. And, and, I, and I just always thought that, yeah. that, that the... In, in the world of great oxymorons, uh, <laughs> libertarians for slavery was always one of the great ones, right? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, well, and, and Lou Rockwell, who also was a, I think he was the legislative uh, chief of staff for Ron Paul right. back in the 70s in his first stint in Congress and things like that, was identified um, as one of the uh, authors of the Ron Paul newsletters that right. caused the huge stink, as they should have, because they were... Full of uh, racist garbage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, Rockwell, actually, and this, this is a dividing line, certainly between me and him, he famously wrote a piece after um, Rodney King was beaten by the LAPD. He wrote uh -huh. a piece in the LA Times saying, you know, like, when I look at that, I'm not afraid of the LAPD. I'm afraid of Rodney King. And uh -huh. it's kind of like, wow, that is amazing, especially for a guy who claims to be speaking about, you know, who's worried about state power above right. all else. And it's like, yeah. Um, so 
I am not sure where you're going with yeah, this. No, so I'm just, not, I'm I'm not just, going no, 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 I'm not, I'm not yeah. trying to do guilt by association. Oh, no, stretch, no, right. no, I'm not saying so, that. It's For me, you know, there is, and I think this is probably true in all ideologies, there is a kind of populist bent or a kind of localist versus uh, globalist or cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm a libertarian who is called a you know a cosmetarian or a, mm-hmm. an orange uh, mo- orange line mafia, mm-hmm. etc. Despite the fact that I've spent most of the past twenty years living in a small town in Ohio, um, you know, I am a globalist. I'm a rootless cosmopolitan. I, I'm a rooted cosmopolitan. Uh-huh. I, I was born in Brooklyn. I grew up in New Jersey. I love where I'm from. I love local culture, but I also love you know. Uh, kind of the ability to change who you are all the time. I see this very much as what libertarianism is about, and, and certainly Ludwig von Mises, the idea that you... And, and this was a bone of contention between you and me mm-hmm. when John Walker Lind came out. I, yeah, yeah. I believe that you do get to pick and choose your cultures and that you're constantly creating your own uh, uh, sense of identity and sense of culture almost minute by minute. And then you end up casting back and saying, no, no, it was always this way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the Catholic Church does that every bit as much as a libertarian. But uh, And I celebrate the current moment because we actually have so many more tools where we can see what other people are doing and mimic them or communicate with them and hybridize and mongrelize with them. Yeah. So one of the reasons I just bring it up is yep. that it took me years of walking back some of the things I said because there were blanket statements about libertarians mm-hmm. when really what I was doing was aiming at a very sp- specific subset yeah, of okay. them. And, and um, But it, it sort of highlighted for me, who's the guy who ran for libertarian president in 2000? Do you remember? Or was it 2004? Harry Brown? Maybe it was Harry Brown. I got into a long exchange with him on mm-hmm. National Review Online where he kept making this argument um, – which I've heard from many libertarians right. since then, the libertarianism is the only consistent political oh, philosophy, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And first of all, consistency is wildly overrated. Yeah. There's a lot of consistency to Marxism and jihadism yeah, and yeah, Nazism, yeah. No, right? No, I, I agree right. that consistency for its own sake is... Yeah, and it's also just flatly not true. The yeah. more you get to know libertarians is that um, they... This, a lot of the stereotypes about Jews apply to libertarians. You get 10 libertarians in a room, you get 11 positions, and people, right. they argue amongst themselves... All the, the one time. big difference is that the Jews run the world. That's right, and the libertarians don't. Well, no, but according to uh, Holly and Tucker and these guys, oh, yeah, libertarians no, do in no, fact run everything. That is true. Yeah. That is true. So I guess we should take that win. Um, but so you know, so the other place I come from, the three sources of my libertarianism, other than mm-hmm. like reading, um, was one that experience. Two was doing deep dives on fusionism and where conservatism right. ideas come from, and third was that. Uh, a one of our both mutual very close yep. friends, Ron Bailey, I used to work with him and we used to get into lots of arguments right. about libertarianism and he helped me on a lot of these things. So, But one of the things that I think has been remarkable in the last 20 years among people who call themselves libertarians is the old libertarian argument of the National Review Frank Meyer variety, mm-hmm. which originally came around as called individualism, right? right? Um was and that was sort of the right wing libertarianism mm-hmm. um, uh, was very much framed in terms of negative liberty. Right, right? Uh, the state has no right to intrude on these things. My mm-hmm. rights to a gun, my rights to religion are prior to the any power of the state. The Bill of Rights are all yeah. framed in the negative. Um, and in the last twenty years, there has been a growing strain of thought. That libertarianism could be defined as as having a great comfort with positive liberty, hmm. and one of the 
one of okay. the sort of touchstone pieces about this was a column you wrote for Reason, I don't know, like 15 years ago, 10 right. years ago, where you talked about how you were much happier in the city, you felt freer oh, yeah, in the yeah. city and all of these oh, kinds of that, things. Oh, but that was not a positive liberty argument at all. And I'll, I'll, I, that was, you know, controversial. Uh, this was something that I uh, realized when I was living in Huntsville, Texas, uh-huh. which is a prison town about 80 miles north of Houston. I was not in the prison. Um, my uh, now ex-wife was teaching at Sam Houston State University. So, uh-huh. um, And there were houses there that were like basically brand new that were five-bedroom houses that were going for like 80 grand. And yeah. they couldn't sell that. Like nobody wanted to move there. So, And, you know, we talk a lot about the cost of living. We don't talk about the demand for living. There was like virtually no demand for living in Huntsville because mm-hmm. it was a bunch of supermax prisons and the death chamber in Texas. Uh, which we moved there in 96. And uh, in half a year, there had been a stay of executions for a number of years that was just lifted. They executed something like 42 people in six months. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was like amazing. uh, Nobody wanted to live there. Um, And at the time, libertarians, and I think a lot of business-friendly conservatives talk a lot about this, how like, you know, if you just, you know, uh, take away taxes and regulations, like people will flock to Kansas. And Mm -hmm. this was um, it was Forbes and like uh, Pacific Research Institute or something had just come out with a a, um, a study saying you know Kansas had the best uh, environment for business. Right. So you know expect people to move there, and I was like, no, like you're you're getting it all wrong. That what I learned living in you know in internal exile in Huntsville, Texas, was that I was more than willing to pay a huge premium to live in a, a city like New York or D.C. or Los Angeles, which I had moved from. So none of that had anything to do with positive or negative liberty. It was really about um, the um, banality or, the, or just the thinness of a lot of very economical or econ- homo economicus type thinking mm-hmm. on the right, and especially among libertarians, where they say, all you have to do is cut taxes and everything will flow from that. I don't think that's true. Um, right. Okay. So, but... I'll go back and read it. It's okay. been a while. But yeah. um, but it's one of the reasons why it's stuck in my head was the part of the argument was um, these are heavily regulated, heavily big mm. government places, New York, yep. D.C., and L.A., and all the rest. Um, and yet you have more freedom in yep. a certain way, no, right? No, you, I you definitely do. I, I mean, the uh, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Stonfum, what is it? City, ma- City Air makes you free. Oh, um, okay. That's, right. uh, that's where... Our bike Mox Dufry is different, oh, yeah, but that's yeah, no, but it was, was a callback yeah. to that phrase. Okay, um, yeah, and there's actually an interesting medieval law. It was basically if you were a serf and you made it to a city and you were there for more than one year, okay. you were officially free now. That's pretty. So good. like literally, and our free. our mutual friend Ron Bailey, who is you know one of the you know I take responsibility for all the mistakes I've made, but he, one of the great intellectual influences on me. He talks about moving from rural Western Virginia. Right. You can never say and, West Virginia. Yes. And, well, not because of the Civil War, right? Yeah. It's like, um, but coming up through out of the subway in New York for the first time and realizing it was home. And yeah. it's, there is a paradox, and I think libertarians need to think more fully and seriously about all of these kinds of paradoxes where, um, you know, it, you are in many ways more free to live however you define in a city like New York, which is you know, a libertarian nightmare, uh, you know, where everything is regulated, everything is this. But it's also true at the same time, there is this incredible freedom uh, because people around there don't care. They don't follow the rules or, you know, suddenly there are enough people where they get to make rules where they have this temporary autonomous in and they can do whatever they want. So um, a few years ago, um, the lovely and talented Catherine Mango Ward yeah. said to me that she was meeting more intern applicants at Reason who were taking the side of 
the uh, against the gay wedding cake baker. And um, I don't know if anybody okay. here takes that yeah, position, yeah. right? People saying, yeah, the, the state should force a right. baker to make a wedding cake for a gay couple, right? right? Where do you come down on that? Yeah, uh, you know, I will say uh, that I can see I can see situations where it would be legitimate for the state to say, you know, you should provide that service. I think there are very few and far between. And uh, John McAfee, the mm-hmm. great, insane um, antivirus pioneer who is now somewhere in the Caribbean, like uh, steering clear of uh, uh, federal agents who are searching for him or whatever, in a debate for the Libertarian Party presidential nominee uh, in 2012 or 2016, he, I think, said something that was kind of right, is that if there are alternatives where if you know, you you should never. You, the default should be you don't force businesses, you don't force people to um, associate with people if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. But if you were the only bakery in a town that was a thousand miles away from everywhere else, there might be an argument. I, to I, say, I, I would live with that argument. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, and, that's, that, yeah, and I think that's, that's true. a prudential question. What I, you know, so that that's basically my standing on that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I think the larger question. And, and when Rand Paul first kind of announced for Senate, he weirdly made that he made that announcement on Rachel Maddow's MSNBC show, and she immediately started hammering him over the civil rights legislation in the in the mid '60s, um, where and she got him to say, "Yeah, you know what? I would not force." Um, um, lunch counters to be integrated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's like, the, you know, it, the, this argument is a dead one for so many reasons, not mm-hmm. least of which is that, you know, drugstores don't have lunch counters anymore. Right. So it's like, what the, you know, but um, there is a question there, and Ron and other people have written about this, like, are there are there moments where there are restrictions on people's freedom or ability to participate in life that, you know, that might be privately uh, mostly privately established. Are there times where the where the government should come in and say, "No, we're going to equalize this" or whatever? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it turns out when you go back and look at the history of things like segregation or, or the refusal to serve certain types of customers, oftentimes it was local laws or local yeah. rules that, uh, or or the threat of terrorist violence, where it might not have been against the law to serve a black at a lunch counter, but if you did, you knew that your building was going to be firebombed by the KKK, right. and the, the chief of police was a member, etc. Right. You know, it gets complicated pretty quickly, and so I don't think I don't think anybody is really a very few a, nobody has rights to almost anything. I mean, you have a right to be left alone. You have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't think there's a lot of positive rights in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also true that when libertarian, you know, I only care about kind of libertarians in this sense. Like when they think about power and when they think about the ability to participate in a meaningful life. I think our um, fixation on government and particularly the federal government is wrong. You know, when the federal government, and you'll hear libertarians talking about this as well as conservatives and some other people, you know, Eisenhower, what a what a piece of garbage he was for sending federal, uh, you know, National Guard troops into uh, integrate Little mm-hmm. Rock High. It's like actually that strikes me as a pretty good use of the federal government to counterman a completely illiberal. Um, unconstitutional, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of set of actions against blacks yeah. who, you know, who had certain rights to be in public schools. Yeah. No, I, like, I mean, uh, the Democratic, the, the, the Southern slave states and Jim Crow states um, were Democratic tyrannies. Yeah. And they were violating 
the bill, you know, the, both the spirit and the letter of the Bill of Rights. And the, one of the things the president has the power to do is to stop people from yeah. doing that. So I, I, you know, you can talk about excesses, you can talk about all these kinds of things, but the basic principle, I think, was a sound one. Now, to get to that question of, like, oh, so are younger libertarians more likely to basically want it all? Like, Mm -hmm. they want to be left alone when they want to be left alone, but then they want the Are they becoming Julia's? This is a, uh, you know, I think this is a question for American society writ large. Lately, I had started out, um, I, you know, I guess I became libertarian because I read Reason in high school. My brother, uh, who had, you know, I watched uh, William Shatner sing Rocket Man with, um, turned me on to Reason. He found it when he went to college, and then I read Free to Choose, et cetera. Um, I went through a Hayek phase, and now I'm probably more in a Schumpeter phase. And Joseph Schumpeter, in his book *Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy*, has a great—it's—it's it's a um, a kind of generous reading of Freud, uh, or rather of Marx. And he says, you know, Marx was wrong when he thought capitalism and kind of a free society would die because it immiserates the poor and they finally realize they're being ripped off so they stage a revolt. He said actually what capitalism does is it gives off so much wealth that people take wealth and, um, you know, kind of expansion, innovation, upward mobility for granted and they create a a cultural system that ends up destroying the possibility of, of capitalism and of innovation because the creative destruction that uh, capitalism is predicated upon becomes too much for people to deal with. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I, I had a big well, – yeah. from my last book, I was a huge Schumpeter phase. Yeah. And, one and of I, the- I think what we're seeing in American society right now in a lot of ways are people, and particularly younger people, who don't have the memory of socialism and of, uh, you know, of the Warsaw Pact countries and things like that and the Iron Curtain, think, well, it's like – you know, all you have to do is you can always squeeze a little bit more out of businesses or out of rich people or out of this, out of that, and that nobody ever and nobody anywhere ever should be discomfited by anything in the world. And that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. I, and I think it, it probably is taking might be taking a form among libertarians where it's like, well, you know, we believe in individual rights and negative rights, but, you know, here's a bunch of positive liberties mm-hmm. that we should also be pushing. Yeah, I mean. The, I mean, this is a familiar riff for my listeners, but the college students who think at elite universities, I'm not talking about mm-hmm. kids paying their own way through community college or whatever, or even through elite colleges, but like the, the well-to-do, the children, the new class in the Schumpeterian sense, right. right? They go to the, you know, Harvard or Brown or whatever, and they their food is paid for, their rent is paid mm-hmm. for, everything is paid for. All that is asking them is to have a good time and read some stuff and whatever, right? right? And they think they're independent. Right. <laughs> you know, when in reality, yeah. they are the most dependent people in certain ways in all of the history of humanity. Um, and so I think there's a kind of utopianism that comes from thinking that the college experience can be extended on throughout your lifetime. Right. And a lot of progressivism is that. It's just, you know, it's like yep. when Nancy Pelosi says under Obamacare, um, it's about liberty because you no longer be job locked and you right. can now be a poet. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, it seems to me that that idea is. Let me back up. Earlier in our earlier conversation, when I was talking about how if Republicans or if conservatives give up this idea of defending the Constitution and 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 notions of good character and all of these kinds of things, then no one will. Right. right. As an institution, yeah. if libertarians give up (laughs) the argument about um, fighting for individual liberty and that 
whatever government can give you, it can take right. away. If they if they turn their backs I, on all that, that's a huge problem. Yeah, I, I have to say, I don't see that as like the the coming wave or uh-huh. anything like that. I'm, I'm asking yeah, the question. Yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't. Um, and you know, where I think we're in an interesting place in politics is that. I think conservatives have a problem with young people in the sense that to the extent that they end up defending things, it's like they, you know, they have to defend the cake baker who is mm-hmm. homophobic or, you know, and, and they have the reasons like uh, typically it's a religious thing. And, you know, um, and it's just even, uh, you know, even younger Christians are like, OK, with gay marriage. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's, you know, it becomes harder and harder and you become kind of, you know, the remnant of like mm-hmm. this older America. And it, and it serves a, a, a social function and whatnot, but it's it's hard to grow if you're doing that. The progressives are offering everything to everybody. And I think most people recognize pretty quickly that that's just like a load of crap. And, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, it's, it's meaningful that the minute that she had to start actually explaining how she was going to pay for her programs, she started to tank right. in the polls. So, you know, there's still a reality principle in place, even among younger people on the left. And I think what libertarians need to do it's in order to expand their base, because we're all like all of us are trying to win the next generation's hearts and minds and all of that, is that we need to kind of explain how – what we're doing is not a uh, a recipe for complete social dysfunction mm-hmm. um, or you know or or dissipation and also that there is a value in facing hardness in a, in a life that otherwise is pretty easy i mean i i'm like two generations away from ghettos mm-hmm. um, my kids don't know the type of hard work i knew i didn't know the hard work my parents knew and you know you know, on and on. Um, and we need to have a cultural memory so that people are willing to say, okay, things are going to be tough for a while, or there are going to be outcomes in the world that we can't remediate, whether it's through government or corporate policy or anything like that. Um, and I think one of the places where libertarians have done a poor job in general is kind of looking at the institutions of civil society um, that actually are, you know, traditionally are the places that kind of help for a lot of that kind of stuff. Okay, I want to pick up on that, but there's one point that I think we can all agree on is that whether you're a libertarian or a populist or conservative or whatever, is that cookies are good. And I want to talk to you about Mrs. Fields. <laughs> no, seriously, everyone is pro-cookie, which is why when time is short but the need to give gifts is high, the answer is the gift of cookies. And that's where Mrs. Fields comes in. When Debbie Fields started Mrs. Fields Cookies 40 years ago, she won over cookie lovers everywhere with her gooey chocolate chip cookies, melt-in-your-mouth brownies, and passion for sharing the joy of baked goods. Nowadays, you can have cookies sent right where you want them without visiting a bakery. With gourmet gift tins and baskets filled with fresh-baked cookies, you know that your order will arrive fresh and flavorful. It's true. We got a gift tin at uh, the Goldberg household, and it was uh, fantastic. I'm just sorry my daughter wasn't around, to, or maybe I'm not, uh, to hoover them all down. Ordering is easy, and they can ship your cookies anywhere across the country. If you're ordering, a, if you're ordering as a gift, you can add a personal custom message, company logo, or family photo. Best of all, Mrs. Fields orders a 100% customer satisfaction guarantee. So to sweeten the deal... Our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you go to mrsfields.com and enter DINGO. That's mrsfields, M-R-S-F-I-E-L-D-S.com, promo code DINGO. 
you get 20% off any gift at mrsfields.com promo code dingo. mrsfields.com promo code dingo. D-I-N-G-O. Your cookies are on the way. We thank Mrs. Fields for sponsoring this episode of The Remnant. All right, so... Um, that look, is... Can I comment on the ad? As long as you don't disparage or, I'm not, No, yeah, I'm okay. just going to say, I, uh, you know, cookies are good. I don't... Uh, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable with that as a universal statement. As a, really? Yeah. On what grounds? Uh, you know, uh, carbs are, you know, carbs are one of the enemies uh-huh. that are out there. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, I guess cookies in moderation are good. All right? things in moderation. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, as, you know, as I, as I say about nationalism, all poisons are determined by the dose. That's true. That's true. Um, I, I am, uh, for the past three years, I've basically been eating vegan, not uh-huh. out of any moral philosophy, but it allows me to eat more and not gain a lot of weight. Yeah. And so, like, cookies are, are a problem. I understand that. You know? um, I, a few years ago, lost a whole bunch of weight because I went sort of no carb. Um, I've since found a lot of that weight. Um, yeah, yeah, no. But it's I'm amazing. Trying to get, it yeah. keeps turning up. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, but just to be clear, we are not saying anything deleterious or defamatory no, about Mrs. Fields about cookies. Mrs. Fields yeah. cookies, which I remember well. I remember I was living and working in New York when I think all those shops opened emerged, up. Yeah. yeah. And it was like uh, she was in a death, uh, you know, it was like a, a mob war with David's cookies. If I remember There was David's correctly. cookies. And then there was also famous Amos. Famous remember? Amos. Yeah. Uh, who I saw uh, peddling something on Shark Tank and he didn't get a deal. So Seriously. About famous Amos. Uh, he was like the Colonel Sanders. Like he apparently yeah. sold Famous Amos in a deal that, like you know, got him a little bit of money and then, oh, like no. a lot of personal appearances. So he's he's trying for a second act. So it's funny. I, I have to give credit to Tim Carney who first pointed this out to me. But um, the guy who invented the cronut. Oh yeah, yeah. So he apparently <laughs> set, had gave. Tim was making this point, which I made, but I didn't have the example of the cronut about. <laughs> How annoyed he gets when people talk about how when rich people talk about how they need to, now I'm going to give back yeah right and uh, so you gave a bunch of money to charity good for him and you should give money to charity that's a good thing but like it completely misses the point of how uh, market exchange works right he didn't take from society right. he gave us the cronut yeah. <laughs> you know and um, uh, and it sort of gets to you know the um, oh God I can't remember what we were talking about. Um, Schumpeter? No, long before. It was in the first podcast. Um, eh, it doesn't matter. I'm getting a contact high from your editorial bullpen. I understand. Um, uh, so I don't. I, I know I just dragged us out of the weeds, but I do want to come back to sort of one yeah, thing, no, right? Please. So um, uh, You're never going to hear a libertarian say, no, let's get out of the weeds. Um, that's right. Uh, I meant the intellectual weeds, yes. though. Um, the... Um, as, I, as we discussed before, I'm really more and more and more sympathetic to notions of federalism, mm-hmm. and, and you use this phrase uh, "utopia of utopias." Right. I don't like the word utopia, but right. yeah, you know, but but you're just being rhetorical yeah. there. So, um, where let's just stipulate mm-hmm. uh, Jim Crow slavery; these things yeah. are bad. Can't right. have them back. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Where do you draw the line about how strict a local community can be yeah. without inviting? Federal intervention. That is, you know, that's a great question. And again, I'm, I think you know, part of this has less to do about anything going on in the world. And it's more, you, you, you know, if you're in a movement for a long time, you reach a certain age in your life and you start 
you know, examining the model that mm-hmm. you've been you've been using or the lens to interpret yeah. all this stuff. I think that's a great question because on a certain level, one of my problems with federalism or the idea that you have different levels of government that cover different things, one one great thing about them is that they're in tension with one another right. so that they're kind of fighting against each other. And I think that's good to disperse and decentralize power in general and give people more options. But another part of me is like, well, it's not you know, I don't want to, you know, like, is federalism good if it means that there's a town somewhere? And I'll say, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so I'll say a town in New Jersey that has re-legalized slavery or, mm-hmm. or de jure segregation. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? Or does no, but, it? But, but, or but, does it? I no, mean, it doesn't like, make no, sense. And, but this is when, when do you get to that moment? And I'm a big fan of um, uh, Hirschman's Exit Voice and Loyalty, mm-hmm. uh, which um, where uh, which is subtitled something like, um, you know how uh, how uh, people deal with states, firms, and something else in decline. Like he's talking about what happens when you're in, in an organization, whether whether it's a business or a, a country or a, a society that is in decline. How do you how do you deal with that? And like one way you do it is through loyalty, where you just say, oh, "Screw it, I'm you know I'm just signing up for this, and I'll do whatever they want." Others, you use voice, you use um, reform methods within the system or exit, which you you just leave and you either start your own business or your own colony or your own country or whatever. Um, you know, and, and those are pretty good fixes, right? Mm-hmm. It gives you a lot of ability. Um, and I'm trying to think of like a concrete example where I would say, okay, the Fed should come in or the state should come in on a locality or a locality or the state should push back against the state. I think Trump is doing something interesting when he is pushing to invalidate, if I, I think I'm getting this right, to invalidate California's ability to pass emission standards. Right. You know, so he's saying, you know, the laboratories of democracy stop when we're talking about um, you know, uh, emissions uh, systems on cars that effectively set a national standard. That's kind of an interesting question mm-hmm. from a libertarian point of view, from many points of yeah. view. Um, and I don't know exactly how I feel about that. Prohibition, you know, what's weird about that is like it, it returned, the end of prohibition returned uh, things to state control. And you had Oklahoma, which I think only uh, uh, allowed alcohol in 1958. Mississippi officially only overturned prohibition in 1966. I guess I could live with that. Mm-hmm. I could live with, you know, and I could live with that for pot legalization. I don't know, and I, I'm pro-choice. I don't know if I would live with that in terms of abortion because I think that might be a more basic right. And, you know, I, I realize we disagree about, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's good or bad. But I'm saying, like, you know, at what point to me, yeah. I, I want to say all rights, you know, and not a right to, you know, have a cronut that mm-hmm. tastes great and doesn't make you fat. Mm-hmm. Not that kind of right, but, like, the ability to do what you want, like, you know, use certain types of intoxicants or have certain medical procedures, like, God, that's kind of universal. Like, I don't know that I would want to live in a locality or a state that didn't allow that or a country. But you wouldn't have to, right? Yeah. No, I agree. So this, you know, and again, I, I mean, I moved back to New York after 30 years away and it's like, you know, I'm paying much more in taxes. I'm paying much more in kind of restrictions on certain things I can do. Because overall, the package of options and the ambiance and everything is better. Um, so I don't know that I want to say, like, well, New York isn't allowed to charge this kind of tax or do this kind of thing because we should give different places as much possibility and as much leeway to, to either make a great place or a, a crappy place. Yeah. So it's funny that you bring up the California thing because I'm struggling with that one, too. Yeah. Um, but it does you, – you mentioned before how libertarians are starting to think about 
how corporate power in the 21st mm-hmm. century might be a bigger problem? I don't think so, personally. But right. I, I do think there are moments where, like, you know, we need to uh, – Hayek at some point and, you know, his terrible English, which I'm going to mangle even more, said something, you know, like you, you have to update all of the arguments and make, you know, the uh, formation of a free society a, a, a courageous and an exciting adventure or something. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we need to do that um, because the arguments – that people like Elizabeth Warren are pushing against Facebook and and Twitter and YouTube and whatnot are absolutely rooted in, you know, Louis Brandeis's stupid ideas from the progressive era. But we're in a different world and we need to adapt our arguments to the current moment. Yeah. So the, the reason I brought it up, though, was um, um, the California thing mm-hmm. Feels reminiscent to the power that sort of crony capitalist railroads had in the 19th century, right? right? Where they they had a vested interest in imposing standards across the entire country for the good of you know, right. I mean, um, and I I don't want to go all Gabe Colco, but yeah, you know, yeah, there's yeah. but there's something to all yeah, of that, yeah. And um, so I'm more sympathetic to California wanting to do that, um. And if it makes it more difficult for car dealers or car Owner, manufacturers, everybody, yeah, it, yeah, okay, you know, um, I agree. In a, in a large sense, and there was a great book that was written by a woman named Erica Grider, who's a journalist in Texas, um, and it was a study, and I'm blanking on the title, it was something like, uh, you know, but it, it was about California versus Texas mm-hmm. as kind of broadly speaking models of governance. And right. In California, you had high taxes and the promise of high level of, of services. In Texas, you had low regulation and a promise of low social services. And it's kind of like, you know, the beauty of America in a way is that, you know, for in, in the largest sense possible, people can choose. Mm-hmm. And then you might choose something like Colorado or Arizona or someplace else that's somewhere in the middle. And that goes back to the utopia of utopias. I mean, clearly, I think, and actually, I realize most people don't agree with me. I, I took it for granted that they would, that when you have, like, if you have 15 choices, that's much better than having one choice. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you only have one choice, it's not a choice. It's right. just reality, right? Not everybody agrees with that. But I think one of the things that is good about America and what has been good about the past 25 years um, and this isn't because of the government per se. It's partly the government. It's partly uh, civil society, technology, rising levels of wealth and education. We have more options available. Like you can live more how you want to uh, and and pick and choose and move from one side to another and things like that. And, you know, I think that's good. Yeah. So it seems to me that part of the problem with the phrasing of all this is that if you want the federal government out of your business, state and local government might have to get a little bit more into it. Right. And if that, but the benefit of doing that is that um, you actually have more chance of being heard by a politician close to home than you do one far away. Although, and this I'll just, you know, this is partly my thinking on a lot of this stuff is tempered by the fact I lived either part-time or full-time from about 98, actually, if you count Huntsville, from 96 until 2018 um, in small towns Mm -hmm. in Texas and in in Ohio. And, you know, there is a local tyranny. Sure. That is so much worse because... 
it you know it can be decided by like 50 people mm-hmm. and they can run everything you know the flip side of it is so it's much more local and you see them when you go shopping in Kroger mm-hmm. you know the people who are destroying your business or making your life miserable um, by the same token, because it's a smaller unit uh, jurisdiction, you can move more easily. And also, the more power that they have, the more people in a local community will take an interest in local politics over national politics, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It, one of the reasons why you have local tyrannies is these guys have so little power that they can manage their their grift right. and, and their rent-seeking um, pretty well when everybody realizes like holy crap r- voting for president really won't affect my life but voting for mayor will yeah. more people will turn out to vote for mayor I guess you know what uh, I realize now part of what um, and I, you know I'm not pretending to be a systematic thinker or a deep thinker certainly uh, and for me one of the reasons I'm libertarian is like I don't want to shift my politics from the federal level to the local level like what I want to do is take the amount of energy that I have to spend on politics and shrink it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I want I want less government at every level. And, I, 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 look, yeah. and that's a reasonable yeah. position to take, and no, I probably I, do yeah. too, but at yeah. the same time, if you don't want a monarchical president, right. stop sending power to Washington, because and if you don't want ugly yeah. politics where politics consumes everything, stop making the presidential election or the congressional election at the yeah, federal yeah. level as important as it is. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, Anyway, and so in a weird way, I would argue, even as government gets bigger and bigger, I think this is happening or what you, what you are seeing in national politics in the book that Matt Welch and I co-wrote seven years ago, eight years ago, the Declaration of Independence started with the insight that um, fewer and fewer people are identifying as either Republican or Democrat. Right. Um, you know, and then we, we can have an argument about whether or not there are actual independents or is that kind of a fraud. But there's no question that the parties are smaller than they were. Uh, we talked in our previous hour about, uh, you were talking about how they are less powerful than mm-hmm. they used to be. It doesn't mean politics have shrunk. But it, it's I, I see in the evacuation of political identity as the first thing that people say about themselves. I see that as a promising sign. What worries me currently, and this is something that Trump has managed to do, you know, um, he has turned, ev- everything is now political. Like every utterance and like when he... You know, the NFL has become political. Pardoning uh, turkeys you know, has become yeah, political. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and then, and you know, on the progressive left in general never had a problem with that because right. they believe that everything is political and must and always will be. I believe that it often is and, you know, that's what we need to identify and attack and get rid of. But Trump, in a way, if I have a – the strongest critique I have of him is that he has transformed – the government and the presidency into something that everybody has to care about every second of the day and yeah. every utterance. He's hyper-politicized stuff. And God, that's a that's a terrible world to live in because politics is about, you know, 51% of people getting to tell everybody else how to live. And like, I want to shrink the areas of life where that happens to the absolute smallest amount. I, in general, I'm in agreement with that. Um, all right. Um, not to shut this down. But. Can we talk about Mrs. – what is your favorite uh, cookie then at Mrs. – I'm giving you a bonus ad here. I That's appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, I – this is a bone of contention in the Goldberg household. I am more of a oatmeal raisin guy than I am a oh chocolate God, chip cookie guy. Yeah. A, a f- I did not w- see that coming. With the exception of a freshly – like out of the oven, hot 
chocolate chip cookie yeah. is one of the greatest things that God has ever created. Okay. But one should expose oneself. I think to those with, with limited on rare occasions. Um, well, and an oatmeal raisin cookie is almost a health food, really. I, that, that's what I keep telling yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, for sure. Um, so we never finished. You still haven't seen the Mandalorian. I am not going to see The Mandalorian. I um, I can remember, God, it's, I guess, like an early memory, although I don't think I was that young. But I can remember waiting in line in movie theaters. Uh, sort of, I think I ended up seeing it in Ocean County, New Jersey. Uh, it was quite a hike, like when Star Wars came out and you had to go to the theater and you couldn't buy tickets ahead of time yeah, yeah, online yeah. or anything like that. And you would just stand in line until the next show, and hopefully you would get to see it. And I was the Seaview Square Mall in, like, Ocean Township, New Jersey. And uh, there was a rainstorm, and you stayed with it, et cetera. And, like, I loved Star Wars early on and as a kid. And I am, am always amazed by these weird fictional universes. Uh, Star, Star Trek is another one where it mm-hmm. just creates fan communities. Yeah. And people use this imagined world to talk through all sorts of things, to make connections, to have fun, I, which I all love that. But the specifics of this Star Wars universe now, I'm just kind of done with. Uh-huh. So I don't know, but the Mandalorian, I mean, I keep seeing the pictures of Baby Yoda. And yeah. I'm kind of like, is it like Tiny Toons, but for Star Wars? Or no, 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 no. Yeah. It's actually much, much grimmer and darker. It's, okay. it's, 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 it's very much, it, I mean, it's a total ripoff of a bunch of West, Western yeah. cowboy movie kind of motifs. Right. And which makes a certain amount of sense since, it, I mean, the original Star Wars, well, I guess, was a ripoff of Flash Gordon, which in itself traded in a lot of Western tropes. Of, right. Um, yeah. But, uh, it's the first thing in the Star Wars universe I've seen in a long time that um, I actually liked. And you were saying I, before that yeah, you... Oh, I'm a fan of the second trilogy. Like, for me, what it was is I liked the first Star Wars, um, The Empire Strikes Back. I was like, okay, it's pretty good. It just stops. It doesn't really end. Uh, you know, they, they you know have to save something for the third movie. The acting is really bad, I think. Okay. Uh, the Return of the Jedi or whatever is awful. I mean, it's just a terrible movie. I hated the Ewoks, um, and then. The but you liked Man. Jar Jar Binks. Oh yeah, totally. It's it's and also what is weird about that? I guess it's the Phantom Menace is just filled with these repugnant old racial and ethnic stereotypes. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And it's like kind of George Lucas, like, what are you thinking? And yeah. I, and I'm always I'm kind of amazed by him when you look at his filmography. He has you know THX one one three eight, which is yeah. a, a mediocre dystopian story. Uh, he has American Graffiti, which is a phenomenal work. And when you look at it now, it's fascinating, you know, because we're in the twilight of the baby boom generation. So I'm interested in these mm-hmm. kinds of topics. That movie came out in the early mid 70s and it's a total nostalgia act. And the totally. baby boomers were nostal- nostalgizing their childhood yeah. while they were in their early 20s. I yeah. mean, like, what's going on? I mean, with happy that? days. Yeah. You know, exactly. Yeah. All of that stuff. And, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre to me. And, like, uh, you know, Shana Na appeared at Woodstock. I yeah. mean, what the hell is going on? Part this of it. Is a, it's, it's a weird generation, and I'm kind of interested to see how all of this plays out. But George Lucas then does, like, Howard the Duck, which is awful. Which is really awful. Um, you know, and The Phantom Menace. and the Willow was awful. Yeah. The, um, uh, the, you know, I kind of like, um, I like the second trilogy. And one of the things uh, I, you know, one of, one of the things I liked about it was, like, okay, you know it's going to end with... Uh, Anakin becoming uh, Darth Vader. Right. 
And it's like, how are you going to get there? And it's like, I would have loved to have seen, you know, the, the Transcontinental Railroad or the St. Louis Arch <laughs> being built. Like, because you know where they got to go. And like, are they going to get It's yeah. like Rachel Ray's 30 minute meals. Like, is she going to plate the, you know, is yeah, she yeah. going to plate the chicken fricassee in time or not? It's for me, that was an interesting exercise. Yeah. I mean, I, I see. I, I think one of the reasons why as a, as a liberatory, you should like it is because. <laughs> It turns out that the central issue of politics at the time were trade disputes. Yeah, no, and the Jedi's right. are going out yeah. trying to like fix trade disagreements. But the Jedi you know? are kind of sketchy on that, right? Like uh, you know, because they're also like I realize more and more like I, I'm a uh, well, you know, it's not like the Empire is a good thing, but like I, I become more and more mired in class analysis because as I went to grad school for literature in the late 80s through the mid-90s, and everything was race, class, and gender. But right. nobody ever talked about class. Cause right. Especially in academia, nobody ever wants to cop to being poor, or having been poor, or have bad taste. Um, and the Jedi are a little bit, uh, they're, they're too much like, oh, you know, we are a long tradition, blah, blah, blah. And, like, you can't, you can't simply join. Like, you can't work out and join us. Like, you right. have to be born into the order. No, no, there's like some that. definitely some noble blood like, stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the old Batman-Superman thing. It's yeah. like, even though Batman is a rich guy, he worked for it where Superman is born that way. And I'm always on the side of... You know, I, I'm, I'm about two seconds away from saying, like, Darth Vader is obviously the hero because he <laughs> made himself, you know, he made himself into, uh, you know, what he became. I, I, you know, when I watch The Incredibles, uh, what's his name, Syndrome, the uh -huh. villain, obviously the hero because he's not born with any powers and he creates them. Sid from the original Toy Story, obviously the hero, uh -huh. you know, because he takes mass-produced culture and then re, uh, you know, re-jiggers it to his own desiring needs. I, that's the hero, always. Yeah, no, your 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 romanticism is coming out. Um, but uh, <laughs> the thing you got to grapple with, and I got I to credit Jonathan Last. He was really the guy yeah. who focused it for me. Is there a very strong case that the droids are slaves, just yeah. straight up slaves, yeah, right? Yeah. And they haven't. And if you if you look for the evidence, it's you know they actually in the, what, the solo movie they made a joke about it, but they're right. straight up slaves, and they 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 kill them, and these are yeah. sentient beings right, yeah. who have emotions. They yeah. even have a religion. At one point, C three PO says, "Thank the Maker," like he's got yeah. a god, and they're perfectly fine flipping their off switch, blowing them up. There's no moral consequence to killing these things, and they even call their humans master. I mean, right. they are slaves, and um. I got you know there was a there was a bad article. This is one of the reasons why Star Wars is kind of fascinating because it allows, you know, it it gives you a space to have these kinds of arguments. Right. Where you, you know, it's not you're not going to punch each other out at the end of them. Right. No, that's right. And um, but I thought you because we were talking before you know when we were doing the weighty issues before we started, you were talking about how you liked the legislative battles with Jar Jar Binks oh, as a absolutely. senator. Oh, absolutely. No, I would watch, if there was a Star Wars C-SPAN, I would I would be watching that for hours. As my, I love C-SPAN, and I would love, you know, the you know the, the when somebody, you know, with a lizard face or something gets up and talks about the need to have stop signs on Endor or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, of course. Of See, course. Like, please walk through the special order speeches. Who's the Newt Gingrich of yeah. the Intergalactic Congress or Senate or whatever? Uh, he's the emperor. Um, but uh, my... Um, my thing like that is uh, I love the first five to 15 minutes of zombie movies mm -hmm. where you see the society actually responding yeah. to how it works. Yeah, yeah. I find it gets really tedious after a while. Just, oh, just stab yeah. a zombie in the head or, oh, my right. gosh, he didn't tell us he was bit and he turns into a zombie and now yeah. he's going to kill us all. 
those tropes we've seen a million times. But I love that first fifteen minutes where like the newscasters don't know how to yeah. like talk about what's going on and all that uh, kind of what, stuff. Uh, you must be a fan of the Omega Band. Or have you seen that with Charlton Heston? Oh yeah, so, yeah sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. And it's like I love the movies when they show the breakdown of society yeah, and like that's the what best happens, part. et cetera. And then, yeah, unfortunately, then it gets it gets less interesting as any of those scenarios. Yeah, go on. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why I like what was the Will Smith one? I am Legend. Yeah, the beginning yeah. of it was actually great, yeah. you know, and then it just got turned into a video game. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I also I love um, Hollywood depictions of hippies and like the idea of in the Omega Man. You know, it's just basically the newscaster becomes, you know, like the leader. He's Charles Manson yeah, yeah. mixed with Timothy Leary. And he's trying to put the old hatreds behind us. And it's kind of uh, it's it's hilarious. Um, did you watch? And I realize I'm extending uh, this fine. past your cookie break. And uh-huh. all of that, But um, did you watch Man in the High Castle? Yes, I did. Yeah. Now, I thought that was a fantastically. Uh, rendered alternative universe, the uh-huh. foregrounds. You know, it, in season three, they really played up the idea of the resistance and you know Trump resistance and all of that. I can take or leave that, but I thought that was a fantastic meditation on. Um, okay, you know what? We actually have a bunch of alternative timelines going on, and right. we can opt in and out. There's limits to them and everything. And I thought that was really extremely well done. I'm a huge Philip K. Dick fan. And what I liked about his books, though, are almost always disappointing. They're yes. like outlines for novels, not novels themselves. This really filled that in, and it was a kind of exquisite uh, final season. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about how they tried to stick the landing with Darth Vader, with Anakin becoming Darth yeah. Vader. Figuring out how to f- explain who the man in the high castle was was a really difficult yeah. thing for yeah. the TV show. And I thought they did a great job in the first couple seasons. Him ultimately turning into basically Rod Serling under duress yeah, was a bit yeah, of a problem. Yeah, um, I, I agree. That was not quite up to uh, snuff. But overall, and I I thought the idea, and again, this goes back to me, and I realize it's a, 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 a territory of some dispute between us. The idea of that there, you know, is a multi, like a, not a multiverse, like uh-huh. not a Rick and Morty multiverse, but, you know, that there are many, many alternatives to what we do now and what we can be doing in the future and that we can retroactively change the past. Somebody like T.S. Eliot created, you know, just happened to create the, the literary tradition of which he was the perfect mid-20th century exemplar of. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the metaphysical poets were not considered gigantic before Eliot kind of cast back and like drew a line of an apostolic succession from these guys to him. Um, and I think we do all do a variation of that and kind of being conscious of that and playing with that is really meaningful. Um, the New York Times is doing a terrible job, I think, with the 1619 project. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, 1619 project. Um, but that's one way of doing it. Another way, I, and one that is more near and dear to my heart, is looking at Roger Williams, who was one of the uh, an early um, figure, a religious dissenter in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. What would happen if everything in America had kind of followed his? He mm-hmm. he traded with the Indians. He bought property. He created Providence, and then got the charter for Rhode Island. Um, you know, like we could have a very different America if we had followed Roger Williams' America. And what can we incorporate from that into contemporary times? Um, I think about America more. My story of America really is an immigrant story from mm-hmm. the mid nineteenth century or mid nineteen uh, teens, and you know, but we're constantly changing our timelines by how we talk about the past, what we discover in the past, and then how that affects what we do in the future. No, no, I agree with yeah. a lot of that. I, I'm, 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 
And um, I think Sorab Amari is trying to do something like that. And it's it's fascinating to me, you know, that a guy who's, what, a, an Iranian immigrant who's a recent convert to Catholicism is now is telling America, OK, this is how it's going to be. Yeah. And in a weird way, um, that's the most American thing it's that very you American. could be doing. Yeah. I mean, it's so, like fantastic. But I, I've been fascinated by this, something similar to this for a very long time, which is um, you the, the past can change the future mm-hmm. because um, and the present can change the past. Mm-hmm. So the example I often use is that, you know, for most of our lives, um, was it 1922 when the House of Saud and the Wahhabis take right. over Saudi Arabia? Yeah, yeah. Really marginally important date. Right. But 1917, when the Bolsheviks take over, hugely important, yeah. right? With the fall of the Soviet Union, 1917 becomes less and less relevant, right? right? Yeah. And with 9-11, all of a sudden, 1922 yeah. seemed hugely important. Right. And the way we sort of retroactively pick up on these previous timelines and say, right. holy crap, we were missing the plot yeah, yeah. is really kind of fascinating. And what plots are we missing now? You know, speaking right. of Islamic terrorism, like, or uh, Islamism, like a lot of people say, 1979 was a big year because of the Iranian revolution. Right. But then there was the siege of Mecca a few months before that, where a bunch of Islamic radicals seized Mecca and ended up being blown away by French yeah. uh, commandos right. at the behest of the Saudi government. And that's when the Saudi government made the deal to Islamic people or Islamic to the, fundamentalists to, the jihad, yeah, to yeah. say, go, here's money to go spread it, you know, out around the world. Just don't come back here. Right. Um, you know, and so like our eye was on the wrong ball in yeah. 1979 in, in, in a profound way. Yeah. Um, and so the, this sort of gets at the part of my... We, Gone full circle. Yeah. We talked a lot about Holly and Sorab and, yeah. and and the sort of new what Rubio calls common good capitalism, right. which makes me kind of want to wretch. But um, um, the big part of the argument for using how libertarians are being tested by Trump and mm-hmm. the China trade stuff, big part of the argument about why we need to reinvent a lot of our institutional approaches to economics is because China's eaten our lunch and China hasn't... We were told China was going to get free as right. it got rich, and it hasn't, right? Uh, and yes and no. Yes, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I'm using it, shorthand. It, yeah, this is yeah, the argument that yeah, they use, right, right? right? And since it hasn't happened, yeah. and now they're a global competitor and a threat, we have a blah, blah, blah. And my position on that is always not yet, right? right? I mean, it seems to me it is not entirely obvious that even if they do terrible, evil, horrible things in right. Hong Kong, that... The fact that they did those terrible, horrible things in Hong Kong won't have a bizarre, unexpected catalytic effect on mainland China. Right. And um, you ever read It's one of my favorite essays, Orwell he wrote an essay called Second Thoughts on James Burnham? No, I, I, yeah, that you sounds should, fascinating. Oh, you yeah, should read it. It's, really, it, it, it's, it's a short yeah. read and it's brilliant. And part of the point he makes in the course of telling this, uh, critiquing Burnham, who he was obsessed with. Right. Um, and who was an early figure at National Review. Early figure of National Review. and who then became a great critic of bureaucracy, right? Yeah, and actually Orwell gets a lot of his ideas for 1984 from Burnham's stuff about the managerial class, and Burnham was, of course, a Schumpeter Menke. So we're really just going around the horn here. um, uh, But he makes this point that among intellectuals in England during World War II, every single time the Germans had a victory... The intellectual classes, to, oh, oh, crap, we're going to lose the war. Right, right? right? They do these straight-line projections from the moment they're in. Yeah. But if you ask the average English guy in the street, they're like, yeah, we're going to win. Right. You know, oh, yeah, no, it's yeah, too yeah. bad about Tobruk, but we're going to yeah, win, yeah. right? That kind of thing. And he, he makes this point as part of a criticism about Burnham that 
um, straight line projections from the current moment are ultimately a form of power worship because you can't imagine the powerful losing what they've gained right. in any given moment. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a different orientation towards China or anything. Like that. It's just not obvious to me that if you create four or five hundred million middle class people right. that over time yeah. Yeah, freedom it, is going to creep up, creep up on you. I, I think that that's absolutely true. And that, you know, in one way, the model to think about China is the way uh, you know, at the end of the 80s, everybody was enthralled to the idea that we'd all be speaking Japanese, right. et cetera, or Russian or whatever. And like within a couple of years, those predictions, you know, uh, sadly, um, uh, what's her name? Condoleezza Rice had to get a whole new line of work because she had been a Sovietologist. My wife that. got a master's from SICE in uh, Soviet politics the year <laughs> the Soviet Union yeah, broke I up. I mean, that's <laughs> tough. But, but Japan disappeared yeah. as like the, you know, the, the little engine that was going to take over all of America. I mean, within a couple, of, within a year, they were selling Rockefeller Center at a loss, et cetera. Right. And I, this is not to make light of all of the horrific abuses that are going on in China. I was just reading about in Uyghur communities yeah. where um, the state is sending men to sleep in the beds of the of the husbands who they put in concentration camps. I mean, it's unfathomable. But I agree. You know, when you when you raise hundreds of millions of people to middle class status. You are not. They're not going to. They're not going to go along, and right. they're not going to go along very long. And I think, you know, Milton Friedman had said this when Tiananmen Square happened, uh, that you know this made total sense that they had liberalized their economy, people got some money in their pockets, and they started lobbying for political freedom. I think we're seeing something like that again. And regardless of what happens in Hong Kong, you you just you know once people get a little bit of money and a taste of freedom, and also they can leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's. China, it, the idea, uh, the defeatism on the uh, on the left, or rather on the right, is really stunning to me. And this is, this is a weird thing about conservatives, or certain types of conservatives. They have so quickly given up belief that they're that the system that kind of made them, you know, I, they just believe that it's dead and di- you know, done for. Or yeah. something. it's odd. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it, it's very unBurkean, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, the part of Burke's point is that example is the school of mankind, right? I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes the whole point of making mistakes is you learn from them. And under Obama, I always used to say, look, have a little confidence that our ideas, if you actually believe our ideas yeah. are right, history will prove our ideas yeah. are right. And um, and instead, the idea is, is, no, our ideas didn't defeat Obama, and they almost, they wouldn't defeat Hillary, but this this stuff will. And I just think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of surrender. I agree. And I think, you know, possibly I would say the the epistemic problem is and I I actually I don't know if it's the first thing or the second thing or whatever, but that somewhere in the 21st century, which clearly is both in a way is a world of wonders that Mm -hmm. is unimaginable. I was born in 1963 and it's 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 like incredible what's going on Um, on another level. It's a deeply disappointing future. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's just not working out the way it was. But. Um, the idea that this stuff is all going to go away because of one or two elections, like the, I think one of the fundamental flaws is that somewhere in the 90s, there was this great moment. And, you know, Bill Clinton said that year of big government is over. People evacuated politics as the primary source of meaning in their lives and mm-hmm. identity. And we're back to that now. And that's never a good thing. That's a hallmark of totalitarian states, of authoritarian states, and of, I think, of cultures that are kind of on their heels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the you know, the more that we can get on with this, the spaces where you can actually do stuff and innovate and try things, 
the better. And I am particularly worried on the left. Uh, Virginia Postrel had written about this in the in the nineties, but about how environmentalism mm-hmm. was the new kind of socialism. Not that it was socialistic, but that it becomes something where everything is politicized, and you right. get to a point now where it's like you know every soda straw that you use, you're either on the side of humanity or not. And that kind of hyper-politicization is a sign that something is wrong, but it also creates a um, a momentum that just makes things worse and worse. Yeah. And that that's really, I think, ultimately is the enemy of, you know, you know uh, that everything is political. And this is where Trump is in no way conservative, is in certainly no way libertarian, and is, you know, part of the problem which is much bigger than right and left at this point. No, I agree with that. And that's why I tweet so much about dogs, because <laughs> they're uh, immune to politics. Yes, that's right. Although, you know, wasn't the uh, Conan the dog, you know, was just trotted out? Uh, yeah, but he doesn't while. care. She. 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 Well, no, the, I, we can't or get it. We, we don't know. We need a straight we, answer yeah, on this. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm willing to bet that uh, Conan is, uh, like many dogs I've seen, is kind of gender fluid. Yeah, all right. maybe it'll hold a story hour in Sacramento. That, that <laughs> all right, Nicholas, we thanks so much for doing this. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight, zero hour, nine a.m. And I'm gonna be high. As a kite by then. Oh, miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. Touchdown brings me back again to find I'm not the man they think I am back home. Oh, no, 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 I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. Burning out his fumes out here alone. All right. Uh, Now, uh, take it away, sir. Okay, so... How am I going to do this? Okay.